Hello, and welcome back to the Sino Babel podcast. In the last episode, we ended with Chiang Kai shek successfully establishing his new government in Nanjing and almost eradicating the communists, though not entirely. I wanted to move on to talk about what's commonly known as the Nanjing decade. But to be honest, I wasn't sure if the best way to approach it was to do one big episode or lots of little episodes. Even though it's only a 10 year period, a lot happens between 1927 and 1937, give or take a few years. So trying to fit the whole thing into one episode, even if it's 40 minutes long, would mean missing out a lot of interesting details. So what I came down on was dividing up the period into four, maybe five episodes, depending on how it all works out. I want to cover what I consider to be the major themes of the period, the development of the intellectual sphere through the creation of new academic fields and a modern newspaper industry, the changing art world, including cinema and literature, the rise and fall of early feminism, and of course, the all-important question of whether Chang's regime was fascist or not. I thought I'd leave the politics for last because that will dovetail nicely with the next big time period, which would be the Sino-Japanese War, but we'll need to jump back to the communists before we even get to that. A lot happens in a very short period of time. We're not just going to be leaping in five-year chunks like we have in the previous episodes. I'm hoping that by covering themes instead of doing it chronologically will mean that I can cover more of the interesting stuff in more detail. And this will also allow you, the listener, to engage with what you're interested in. So if you're not that interested in feminism or you don't really care about art and cinema, you can just skip those episodes and learn more about what you want to learn more about. So with that being said, this week's episode is going to be about what the intellectual world was up to during the Nanjing decade and how new fields and even career paths opened up in fields like science, medicine and sociology. A positive attitude towards science had been developing among more forward-thinking Chinese intellectuals since the turn of the 20th century. By the way, I should point out now that when I use science in this context, I'm usually talking not so much about sciences like physics or chemistry, but more generally a methodological approach to research. So the use of the scientific method, uh, that sort of thing. So these things hadn't really existed in Chinese academic or intellectual spheres prior to contact with Western modes of thought. And many of the techniques used for medicine or historical investigation had been developed centuries, even millennia prior, and hadn't really been updated since their inception. In fact, their roots are so strong that many of these older methods of practical and theoretical knowledge are still practiced today. I'm sure everyone listening has at least heard of Chinese traditional medicine. Acupuncture, for example, although it's disputed as to whether or not it actually originated in China, was at least practiced there as early as 2000 years ago. But by the early 20th century, the validity of these and other pseudosciences were being called into question. And as usual, those who championed a more thoroughgoing approach to science were familiar faces from the May 4th movement, such as Chen Dushou and Hu Shi. The movement to promote science arguably started even before that, when China lost the Opium Wars and was looking to reassert its domination in East Asia through its programme of self-strengthening, which aimed to take Chinese learning as essence and Western learning as application, which has invariably been referred to as the Yong theory. T meaning body or essence and Yong meaning use or application. 
When this movement eventually failed, Chinese intellectuals saw the need to move beyond the superficial understanding of Western science and technology, whilst also retaining a Chinese essence at the core of China's development. This was especially true when, during the early 20th century, the concept of social Darwinism was introduced to China. More and more intellectuals began to despair at the state of the country, and attempts to promote nationalism and unity blossomed in the intellectual sphere. The real backbone of the development of new science in China were those students who had studied abroad, in Europe, Japan and the US, during the first few decades of the 20th century, bringing back with them a new vitality, but equally importantly, translations of Western literature on science and methodology. Science and the scientific method suddenly became applicable to a range of branches of knowledge, from philosophical and political theories like Marxism, to social theories regarding education and free love. As Chen Duxiu stated in his magazine New Youth, it was up to science and democracy to save China from the political, moral, academic and intellectual darkness in which it finds itself. I think it might seem strange to us now that the Chinese were hell-bent on making Western science Chinese by maintaining a sort of ancient Chinese core at the centre of scientific development, which could then be translated into a method of fundamentally improving and developing China as a modern nation. There were even some who used the whole it's what Confucius really meant when he wrote the Analects 2000 years ago argument, a bit like how some Christians now try and revise interpretations of the biblical narratives to make them more congruent with modern day scientific facts. But I think it's important to remember that the whole point of adapting and adopting anything from the West at this time was so that China could stand next to them, not be exactly like them. The angst that plagued early modern intellectuals in China wasn't that China was worthless or beyond saving or morally or socially bankrupt, but actually the opposite. China was worth saving. And in fact, there was something about China that was so important that it was worth risking thousands of years of foundational knowledge and methodological wisdom in order to preserve that special Chineseness. The problem was that Chinese knowledge was inherently disconnected from reality or the physical world, relied heavily on believing just whatever ancient scholars said was true without any challenge whatsoever, was written in deliberately esoteric language that took years of study to even understand, and failed to promote originality or critical thinking. The scientific method, on the other hand, although it originated in the West, wasn't just a Western concept. It was a tool for finding out the truth to discovering new knowledge and correcting past mistakes to seek out paths to improvement. It belonged to everyone and could be used by anyone. So if we take all these themes, developments in new knowledge, hopes and dreams of a better China, and returned overseas students and mix them all together and fast forward to the end of the 1920s, then what are we left with? Okay, so we know the whole democracy thing doesn't really work out. But in terms of science, a few important developments are made. I just want to cover a few of the key developments that I think will showcase an overall development in academia, but also I mainly just picked out the ones that I personally find interesting. So here we go. The first thing to mention should probably be the development of scientific organisations, societies, institutions and university departments throughout the 1920s and 1930s that were free in principle from government influence. Many science-oriented societies that were founded in the 1920s, and some even in the 1910s, laid the foundation for the growth of science in general during the Nanjing decade. 
A good example would be the Science Society of China, which was actually founded at Cornell University in 1914. Our favorite intellectual Hu Shi was also a founding member of this society. Honestly, I feel like Hu Shi was just everywhere doing everything at this period of time, but we're just gonna roll with it.、Uh, we don't have time to go through every single founding member and all of their backgrounds, but they were all at the Hu Shi level of importance and influence. So just bear that in mind. They also set up a journal called Kershui, which translates as science, which allowed the society to retain a sort of center to which they could all return or fall back on, even after they moved back to China and went their separate ways. Some becoming nationalist loyalists, while others went down a more radical path. They developed their society and journal at a time when China was in chaos and funding for scientific activities was seriously lacking, and the central government was completely unreliable. So, unsurprisingly. The members decided that they should always remain separate from government influence and control, especially if they were going to use science to save China. Having said that, and despite quite a bit of private funding, the society did rely partially on the government, using government offices and gaining subsidies throughout the 1920s. When the Nanjing government was established in 1928, the society applied for and received 400,000 yuan from the Ministry of Finance, as well as permanent use of government offices in Nanjing. Also, a lot of the founding members and general members of the Science Society went on to work for government-run science agencies and institutes in the 1930s and 1940s. The Science Society was essentially an independent group that became fundamental in establishing a foundation for the popularization and widely accepted importance of science in the 1930s. By 1929, the society had established the Biological Institute in Nanjing, had its own printing press that published multiple journals, a scientific books and equipment company, and two science libraries, one in Nanjing and one in Shanghai. By 1927, the library in Nanjing had 2,788 Chinese books, over 10,000 books in Western languages, around 3,000 issues of Chinese periodicals, and over 20,000 issues of Western periodicals. They were also handing out scholarships to budding scholars. This growth in the biggest science-oriented society in China was a herald of a positive trend in the sciences in general. By the late 1930s, over 30 universities had science departments with professors with overseas degrees or even foreign professors, and there was an explosion in the publication of science textbooks and translations of foreign technical books. The number of science books published doubled from 1920 to 1930, and between 1910 and 1930, the number of articles on science in Chinese periodicals increased sevenfold. So that's kind of the path that science in general took. So now switching back to science as a method as opposed to just literally science, another field that saw rapid development was that of the humanities, particularly history and historiography, which has largely been attributed to a man named Gu Jiegang. Although we didn't mention him by name, Gu was one of those students who was studying at Peking University during the May Fourth Movement, and surprise, surprise, his mentor was none other than Hu Shi. Gu can be credited with four major contributions to Chinese historiography. The first is his seven-volume work, the Gu Shi Bian, or Debates on Chinese History, which were published between 1926 and 1941. The second is the establishment of the Doubting Antiquity School. Which was basically a collection of himself and like-minded scholars who investigated ancient claims to knowledge and tried to prove or disprove their veracity. 
The third is the establishment of folklore studies as a branch of historical studies. And finally was the establishment of historical geography as a branch of historical studies as well. Even though he was denounced during the Cultural Revolution, today Gu Jiegang is still recognised as one of the most influential scholars of the 20th century, alongside the likes of his mentor Hu Xie. Gu's work, Debates on Chinese History, reanalyzed the Chinese classics, criticising the Confucian Orthodox method of textual analysis that had dominated Chinese intellectual life for nearly 2,000 years. He argued that the idea of a golden age in Chinese history was the beginnings of the process of myth creation and canonization that characterized basically the entire historical record. He called out the scholars of antiquity for being tools of the political elite and encouraged his students to be skeptical of anything that could not be independently verified using what he deemed scientific methodology. It was interesting that Gu heavily criticised certain aspects of Chinese historiography, while also being fiercely nationalistic, lauding the achievements of China's past and stressing the importance of scholars and scholarly work in China. Even the act of setting up a school with him as the central authoritative figure was essentially an imitation of the traditional Chinese school, which typically had a master who transmitted his knowledge and way of thinking to students, who were then to interpret and write works according to his worldview. At the time, his ideas were seen as revolutionary, but they were generally very well received, especially by younger students. Gu's interest in the communities in China's hinterlands led him to visit places such as Gansu and Qinghai provinces, which were considered fairly remote at the time, where he conducted field surveys into ethnography and folklore. It could be said that these areas of study were taken much more seriously because of Gu's personal fame. But regardless, he is largely responsible for starting a trend that permeated into other areas of the academic world. For example... The new interest in ethnography of ordinary Chinese people also led to the establishment of a new academic field of study in China, which was sociology. The idea that the study of the lives of the people may hold value for China's development had sort of started with the literature revolution of the May 4th movement, when Hu Xie had criticised other writers and revolutionaries for wanting to write literature that appealed to the masses without actually knowing anything about the lives of the people that they wanted to represent or communicate with. However, it took a while for it to be fully adopted and transformed into an academic field, again thanks mainly to a handful of dedicated pioneers in the field. Sociology as an academic field in China emerged in the 1920s and also saw the rise of prominent native sociologists and anthropologists such as Fei Xiaotong. Born in 1910, Fei was introduced to sociological methodology and fieldwork by foreign scholars at Chinese universities and actually completed his PhD in the LSC in London. Fei and other Chinese and foreign sociologists at the time performed long and detailed analyses of China's rural population, a group that, although they made up the majority of the population, had been seriously neglected until basically this point in time. Through the application of data collected from fieldwork, their investigations into peasant life at the time reflected the desire to understand the social, economic and political problems that emerged among the rural population during the early 20th century. The main questions raised by these students narrowed down issues not only of China's development, but also of its unique patterns of social organisation and how best they were to be studied. These questions chiefly were, why is land output so low? Why are Chinese peasants so poor? 
Why have methods of production stagnated? How has globalization affected the village way of life? And is China best to be understood as a series of small parts or as a contiguous whole? Many of these studies were produced not only to study the rural population, but also with the idea in mind that any improvements to China's economy should be approached with a deeper understanding of China's majority rural population and their way of life. By the way, if you're curious about the answers to any of the questions that I just raised, we'll get to that when we start talking about the communists in the 1930s and 1940s in a few episodes time. Although most new discoveries and forays into new fields were pioneered by a few dedicated individuals, the nationalist government did make concerted efforts to contribute and control the production of knowledge during this period. Now, we'll talk about the authoritarian bent of the nationalist government in a later episode, but for now, what's important about the nationalists' need for control of both the people and new knowledge was their attempt to create avenues of scientific discovery that could modernise China in a way that complemented their drive for nation-building. In 1928, the nationalist government founded the Academia Sinica, a sort of umbrella scientific organisation that allowed for state sponsorship of semi-independent research with the overall aim of benefiting the nation and bringing the best scholars in the land more in line with the political agenda of the day. Many of the founding members of the Science Society of China did go on to either run, work for, or become associated with the Academia Sinica, despite their general misgivings about the nationalist government and state intervention in academia in general. But many of them were probably persuaded to get involved, either directly or indirectly, by Tsai Yuanpei, another really important scholar come artist come political dabbler that we'll get into in the episode on art, but just take my word for it for now, he's very important, we'll talk about him later. Anyway, the Academia Sinica established 13 associated research institutes. Mathematics, physics, astronomy, chemistry, geology, zoology meteorology, botany, history, medicine, engineering, social sciences, and psychology. They were each established at differing intervals, some in 1928 along with the establishment of the academy itself, and others as late as the mid-1940s. They each had a handful of research fellows, associates, and junior research assistants that looked into topics that seemingly had nothing to do with politics at all, but were quite forward-thinking and really just rooted in intellectual curiosity. I mean, the geologist was studying quaternary glaciation, which, as far as I can tell, is just the study of glaciers from two million years ago until now. The botanists were looking at plants from fungi and algae to sorghum and millet. And we've already talked about what the social scientists and historians were up to. There were some clearly government-sponsored studies, such as those related to ethnic minority groups, health and hygiene, and specific engineering projects. But as I mentioned, many of the people who were running both the administration of the academy and the individual institutions themselves were also members of the Science Society of China, aka people who have a genuine desire to see China prosper through scientific innovation and who have had such desire since the Qing dynasty. So there was a kind of push and pull between scientists and the state. In general, the Academia Sinica demonstrated the nationalist government's dedication to modernization through the principle of the scientific method, which was then kind of warped into a sort of bureaucratic, streamlined process that used scientific notions like planning and group work and experiments and analysis to make improvements and innovations that served the government's political agenda. 
All this is to say that basically for the government, science was basically a shorthand or tool for modernization, which would bring legitimacy to the regime. So they let the scientists do what they want on the one hand, but also made sure that their own goals were being fulfilled at the same time. Unfortunately, the bright future of Chinese science was brought to an abrupt halt in 1937 with the invasion of Japan. And then the war kind of takes over all political attention and budgets for the next 10 years. Incidentally, when the nationalists moved to Taiwan at the end of the 1940s, they took their loyal intellectuals and institutions with them, including the Academia Sinica. Today, Academia Sinica is the preeminent research institution in Taiwan, a state-sponsored facility that conducts independent research into science, social science, humanities, and also looks into the improvement of education and research standards in Taiwan. It also has PhD programs. It trains scholars, publishes journals. So all in all, that's a pretty good legacy of the Nanjing decade, in my opinion. Another area of scientific life that was heavily influenced by the central government was that of medicine. This was partially because those who had studied medicine in the late 19th and early 20th centuries went on to play important roles in the Republican movement and later the nationalist government. It had become more common towards the end of the Qing dynasty for young men to study Western medicine. For example, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, the founding father of Republican China, was actually literally a doctor. He graduated from the Hong Kong College of Medicine for Chinese, which is now HKU, in the 1890s, though his interests obviously took a different turn. It was also fairly common for young intellectuals to study abroad in Japan during the early 20th century, as it was much closer and therefore cheaper than studying in the West, and the two cultures were similar enough that many families felt more comfortable sending their kids to Japan than they did to America or Europe. Wang Jingwei, one of the leaders of the Nationalist Party, for example, studied in Japan on a Qing government scholarship, and Lu Xun, China's most famous writer, actually combined both of these trends by studying medicine in Japan's Sendai Medical Academy, which is now the medical school at Tokuhu University, one of the most prestigious universities in Japan. This trend meant that the influence of Japanese and Western medicine permeated into China gradually throughout the course of the 20th century. Wang Jingwei himself actually supported a movement that called for the complete abolition of traditional Chinese medicinal practices, which was put forward in 1929 by Yu Yun a member of the government's Central Health Care Committee. His proposed law was entirely copied from a law passed in Japan during the Meiji Restoration, which called for the retraining of traditional medicinal practitioners and the banning of the teaching and dissemination of materials regarding traditional Chinese medicine. Generally speaking, the medical elite of China constantly pressured the government to implement Western standards of medicine, citing dramatic differences in birth and child mortality rates between China and the West, as well as the generally sorry state of public health in China compared to that of Western nations. I mentioned earlier that there was actually an Institute of Medicine set up under the Academia Sinica, but that didn't really get going until the 1940s, and it mainly focused on research in organic chemistry and biochemistry. Instead, developments in medicine as a practice was controlled at the central level. In 1928, the Nanjing government set up a health department, which itself set up branches at provincial, county and city levels. It had five main departments, general affairs, medical administration, sanitation, epidemic prevention and statistics. And they also set up a central board of health, 
which was responsible for overseeing the healthcare of the entire country and was mostly based on the American model. Weary of being overly influenced by just one model, however, the government also sent delegations to other European and Western countries to investigate healthcare systems that could be applied to China. These included Poland, Greece, France, Germany, Austria, and even Yugoslavia. A medical education committee was also established to reorganise a fragmented medical school system, which until the late 1920s had been run by various missionary schools, foreign government affiliates, or privately run institutions. The committee was eventually able to formulate a model that trained both high-level medical practitioners and technical specialists in order to deal with the nationwide shortage of medical professionals. However, the confluence of many foreign ideas wasn't only a benefit, as the medical community actually ended up dividing into basically three different warring camps, German, Japanese, British, American, and French, Belgian, each faction being made up of those who had studied either in those countries or in medical institutes established in China by government branches or missionary groups representing these nations. Those who had studied German-style medicine in Japan far outnumbered the other groups, though the standard of education of those who had studied in Europe and the US tended to be much higher and from more prestigious universities, such as Cambridge, Harvard and John Hopkins. The Japanese-German faction were initially the most influential when it came to determining policy, but ended up losing ground to the British-American faction later on, which was really the most important factor when it came to medical reform in China. Unfortunately, as with most things, the power to influence the government's decisions about the development of medicine became more important than the quest for the development of medicine itself. But I guess no one really saw it coming that the real winner would be the Soviet model of socialist medicine, which took over after 1949, along with the Soviet socialist model of pretty much everything else. So that about sums it up for the sciences. I just want to cover one more thing before the end of this podcast, and that would be the developments in newspaper and journalism. Just like the sciences, journalism also falls into the category of borrowing concepts that originated in the West in order to improve China without making China into a pseudo-Western state. Many papers in China during this period were staffed with returned students from the West, particularly the US, as well as university professors. This growth in American influence in journalism sort of mirrors the growth of American influence in medicine. It was the same sort of cycle that saw China relying on Japan throughout the 1890s and early 1900s, and then once anti-Japanese sentiment grew in the 1910s and 1920s, the US influence took over. Those who studied in the US usually went to prestigious universities such as Harvard, or top journalism schools such as the Missouri School of Journalism, and they were able to set up a professionalised industry in China that mirrored that of the US. They were also able to establish journalism as an actual academic subject, a topic for serious study at university level, something that even the journalism industry in the US hadn't managed to achieve. By 1937, there were 26 journalism schools and departments at Chinese universities. Even Peking University had a journalism school, with all the usual patrons of Hu Shi, Sai Yuanpei, Li Dajiao, and there was also a journalism study society there, of which Mao Zedong was a member. Another influence of the US was apparent in the rapid commercialization of the press in the 1930s. 
newspaper publishing actually became a competitive industry, with industry moguls funding multiple local and national newspapers that reached circulations numbering the hundreds of thousands. I think it should also probably be mentioned that literacy rates in China at this point were still relatively low, probably around 20%. And education and newspaper or reading material circulation was still confined to essentially the East Coast and more developed cities. So newspapers and journalism was really an industry by the educated elite for the educated elite, meaning that a circulation of 150,000 was actually a pretty good achievement at the time. The press also remained generally free during this period. The nationalist government wasn't really that good at propaganda. They certainly had nothing on the communists in that regard. And censorship was pretty sporadically and poorly enforced because of the lack of centralised control. Chiang Kai-shek's Nanjing government really only controlled a small part of China outright and relied on warlords to act as sort of governors for hire in different regions. And most of them were happy to let the press do their own thing as long as they tacitly supported the local regime and remained either anti-communist or anti-Japanese as required. Although some newspapers benefited from official patronage, many were able to operate independent of nationalist influence, especially those located in the foreign concession areas of Shanghai. These papers were able to get away with being openly critical of Chiang's ineffective government and his dealings with Japan, and some were even openly affiliated with the Communist Party but not everyone managed to get away unscathed. A case in point is one of China's oldest and most well-known newspapers, Shenbao. The owner, Shi Liangcai, had originally been close with the nationalists, but began openly criticising them and Chiang in the 1930s. Shi was eventually assassinated in 1934, and circulation of the newspaper dipped drastically as it refrained from commenting on the nationalist dealings with Japan from that point onwards. Most cases of censorship never got this extreme. Most involved a mere banning of distribution for a day or two whenever a paper stepped out of line. And some papers, like I said, managed to get away scot-free with open criticism, especially in inland or more remote provinces. This golden era of free press was really confined to the Nanjing decade, however. During the Japanese War, World War II and the Civil War, censorship increased dramatically as Chiang's government took increasingly extreme measures to stamp out any communist influence and the press industry in areas under Japanese control was under even tighter restriction. The press industry after 1949 developed probably pretty much as you'd expect but we'll get to that when we start talking about communist China. In the meantime, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, sorry for the really long intervals between episodes. I've been trying to think of ways to enable more regular uploads, and I think one of the answers is to do less sort of research-heavy, more shorter episodes about studies that I've been reading recently in academic journals, just to introduce you guys to some of the research trends currently prevailing in China studies. Also, Sinobabble now has a YouTube channel by the same name, Uh, I'm doing some video content on there that's not on the podcast, as well as uploading previous episodes of the podcast as well. So check it out if you want to see more China stuff. Uh, That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, guys. And I hope you tune in to the next one.